Okay, all right, ladies and gentlemen, today we have a special treat for you. David, tell them who we have. Our guest is an actress who you have most definitely seen at least a time or two, working for over four decades with more than 230 films on her resume. Beth Grant has starred in classic films and television series such as Rain Man, Flatliners, Dragnet, Child's Play 2, The Golden Girls, Coach, Murder, She Wrote, Speed, Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, A Time to Kill, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, The X-Files, Donnie Darko, and Southland Tales, Malcolm in the Middle, Matchstick Men, Six Feet Under, Little Miss Sunshine, My Name is Earl, Extract, Crazy Heart, King of the Hill, Rango, Modern Family, Dexter, Justified, Grey's Anatomy, The Office, American Gods, The Mindy Project, Netflix's A Series of Unfortunate Events, and of course, no Country for Old Men, and a few dozen handfuls more on top of that, and also starring in over 30 plays from Los Angeles to New York. Plus, she has somehow found time to dabble in writing and directing. Beth Grant, you are obviously extremely busy, so thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Wow, you must really be out of breath. That was fantastic. COVID-free. <laughs> Thank, again, thank you so much, Ms. Grant, for coming on with us today. Again, we always uh, want to say thank you in these times that we live in to anyone that would be more than uh, gracious enough to grace our set. So, again, thank you. Now, let me jump right into it. This is my e-Hollywood entertainment voice here now by Hollywood standards. <laughs> you kind of got a late start as far as, uh, as far as screen acting goes. Now, with your first credit role around 30 years old, we read that as a child. You aspire to be a veterinarian and a movie star, kind of your own personal dog day afternoon. Um, what inspired you to start actively pursuing acting as a career? And what was that journey like turning an ambition into reality? Well, I'd done a little, as you saw, like BJ and the Bear. I had done the pilot of that and a couple of things. But really, OK, I'm going to tell you a sappy story a little bit. But I was working for a television show called Real People. I don't know if you remember that show, but Sarah Purcell, Fred Willard. Uh, comedian Byron Allen, who's now a gabillionaire, gazillionaire running his own network. I mean, he's, you know, just sweet as could be and knew his mother well. She was a publicist at NBC. Anyway, that's a little bit of a sidebar, but that's where I was working for real people. And it was 1984 and the Olympics were cut or 1983, actually. Olympics were coming to LA in 1984. And so there was a man named Bud Greenspan who produced documentaries and they had a big luncheon for him at 20th Century Fox. And we, for some reason, were covering it and we had our crew there and they started showing clips from some of his previous um, documentaries. And one of them was about a man from Africa. I wish I knew the country. I don't remember. And probably 1980 Olympics, who was everyone's pick to win the long distance running gold medal. He had trained, they followed him during training. Everybody thought he was going to get the goal. And he had the unbelievable thing happen. They had barely started the race and he pulled, uh, I think, his Achilles tendons in his leg and could barely walk. But he did not quit the race. Oh, and wow. he walked that 26 miles. He didn't come into the stadium for, you know, a day and a half, two days later. He walks into the stadium limping, barely making it. By then there's, you know, everybody's crying and cheering. He got a standing ovation in the Coliseum. Perhaps the words of John Stephen Aquari epitomize all that is right in the human spirit. When asked why he did not quit, he said simply, 
my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. And I was not alone, we were all moved to tears, but I realized that I had started out with this dream and because I wasn't getting cast in things, I would pick up other jobs and then I would get interested in those jobs. I was celebrity coordinator for Jimmy Carter. I did all these incredible, I, I don't regret any of my experiences, but I started out to be, you know, uh, an actor. And I thought, you know, maybe that's me. Maybe I'm the long distance runner. Maybe I'm the turtle that beats the hair. It's not that it's beating anyone, but I started crying and I had to leave the luncheon. I went over to the crew, the guy, the DP, and I said, can you take it from here? I've got to get back to the office. I cried all the way back to the office. I cried in the office till I had to go home. My assistant said, is there anything I can do? And I said, no, no, I've got to go. And I went home and I called uh, my best friend at the time, Karen Grassley. She, you might recognize her name. She was the mom on Little House on the Prairie. Okay. And I heard myself say, Karen, and miraculously, she answered the phone. First of all, she was a pretty busy lady. And I said, Karen, I can't not act anymore. It just came out of me. And she said, okay, I've been waiting for this. You know, it's about time. And she said, you need to get to class, a serious class. You need to be serious, dedicated, blah, 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 blah. She read me the riot act. And then coincidentally, the next day I was having lunch with a character actor named Alan Garfield. He also was born, he was born with Alan Guritz. You probably know his wonderful work. I told him, I said, I'm good. I want to be an actress. I'm really going to go back to acting. And that's what I've always wanted to do. And he said, oh, well, uh, who, what actor do you want to model your career after? And I said, I don't want to say. And he said, well, write it down. And I said, I don't want to write it down. He said, write down the initials. So I wrote down, M.S. I knew you were going to say Meryl Streep. Yeah, but he says, oh, Maureen Stapleton, good choice, character actor, right? You know, I mean, a leading lady character actress, but still. And I was like, no, not Maureen Stapleton in my mind, you know. But anyway, he invited me to his acting class. I went and that happened to be the week that Tennessee Williams died and the teacher was friends with Tennessee Williams and had worked with him. And at the end of class, not only was did he do great critiques, but in the end of class, he gave a eulogy for Tennessee Williams. And then, you know, said, I hope you're enjoying your martinis wherever you are, Tennessee Williams. And then he walked from the classroom and I said, oh my God, that's my teacher. Because he, first of all, you know, being from the South, Tennessee Williams, but also, he understood theater. That was a great eulogy and a great exit, you know, and I said, that's my guy. And so I was fortunate enough to be able to get into one of his classes. And um, it was a great class, Tom Selleck, um, Patrick Swayze, uh, Tony Danza, Grant Kramer, you know, I mean, all these really good. This was so 1980. Yeah, 83. That's when it was. And then I stayed in class for a couple more years. But so that was what it was, was that long distance runner. I need to look up that guy and find out who he is and what he's doing. Someday, maybe I could thank him because yeah. his story is truly what inspired me to. And now at my age, after all these years, I say, oh, well, I really was long distance runner. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I believe in that. Slow and steady wins the race. Mm -hmm. Yes. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast, mm -hmm. they say in construction. 
um, and 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 you say that you do. You, it's not about beating anybody, but you definitely beat the odds because in most in most cases, as especially with actresses, you have to kind of like make the industry fall in love with you while you are the you know attractive age for them, and then you can be uh, grandmothered in, I guess, into the into working for a long term. But to come into it at like the age of thirty and and still make a name for yourself to where you have all these credits is very impressive. Well, thank you. Well, you know, and actually, um, I don't know the credit list exactly, but really I, I didn't go to his class till I was 33. I mean, I had worked a little, like you say, but that's when I got serious. And, and I, and I also began because of him, he was <laughs> a very powerful man and he really got me to accept myself as a character actress, you know, now it's my great honor. But back then, you know, you think, I don't know that not that you'll be ugly, considered ugly, but unfortunately, you know, in our culture, looks do matter more than they should really. And so it took a while for me to get that. Yeah. That, that talent is overlooked, unfortunately too much. Like, like, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get into speed, but uh, first Rain Man. So you're, this was like your first major motion picture and you're, Working with Dustin Hoffman, Tom Cruise, Barry Levinson is directing. What was that experience like? Because because Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise have, and Barry Levinson and all pretty much made impactful movies by that point. Like they were big names, and you're right there with them now. Well, it was it was extraordinary, and I was so moved by the experience. I remember after I wrapped, going back to the hotel and calling my parents and just sobbing. And, uh, you know, they, they appreciated that they were, they were glad I was working, you know, but they didn't quite, couldn't quite understand why it was such a big deal to me. By the time I shot that, I was, I shot it when I was 38, but I turned 39 shortly after that, which is pretty old to get your first big movie, you know, and, um, but to work at that level was incredible. And I was a huge fan of all three of them. I loved, uh, Barry Levinson movies, all the, you know, the diner uh, trilogy and then I really loved Avalon that uh, baseball movie I just thought yeah. at the time I remember seeing it I kept saying this is real surrealism people think it's Salvador Dali but this is a dream this is like a dream and he's made it real and it was so impactful to me in fact we watched it fairly recently and it really held up it was just as moving to me as as ever and sad and about dreams so uh I was a huge fan so yes to work with him and he was so sweet he didn't say anything to me really he was very supportive I mean he smiled and then at one point he came over whispered in my ear and he said you're doing great kid you know that was it (laughs) and Dustin Hoffman was wild man on campus I mean he he I think he was probably trying to loosen me up he knew I'd done a lot of stage but he also knew I hadn't done a lot of movies and um, I had asked for uh, the, the camera crew frequently will have a diaper on set because it's the, the fabric so smooth to clean the lenses and things. I mean, now they probably have something fancier, but back then they used to use diapers and I was the mother of six kids and I said, oh my God, what a great idea. She probably has changed a million diapers, has a lot of diapers around. Maybe I would have one and I would even be either changing a diaper or drying the dishes or dusting or using it. So I wanted to come to the door with this 
prop in my hand to have this prior event. So they gave it to me. Well, Dustin got it away from me on one of the breaks and he's running around and chasing me with it and popping me on the butt. I mean, just so <laughs> cute. And fun. But, you know, he was loosening me up. Yeah. And I think it was very conscious on his part. And he was wonderful with Tom Cruise too. One of my favorite stories is looking out the window of my little clapboard house. I could see the back of Tom Cruise's, you know, his back. And of course he's in good shape. I mean, and he would work out in the morning before we got picked up at five o'clock. And at, at night when he got back, I mean, he has worked hard for that career. He's yeah. not an accidental star by any means, but he was standing there and you can see Dustin's little arms going like this, you know, behind his back. So he, uh, what was I going to say? Oh yeah. I didn't want to wear any makeup. And I, I did, I wanted to just have my hair in a ponytail. I had this vision of the character, which is pretty, you know, for someone who hasn't done that much, but I just, I really wanted to do her real. I had been up to, um, Big Sur and we had hiked and we had found the cabin where they had raised the first family of Big Sur, 12 kids in this little tiny cabin. And I said to my husband, man, they never do the real deal. This woman raised 12 kids in this little cabin, you know, come on. And so I had it in my mind that I wanted to play a pioneer woman. And then lo and behold, got this audition and the description was literally pioneer woman. And wow. so, so I, I went in with no makeup to audition and that's the way I wanted to play it. And so I went up to the uh, guy that, you know, Tom Cruise makeup person. And I said, you know, I'd like to do it without makeup. And he said, abracadabra, you're done. And let me do it. And so I, I don't know. I felt really good about that. And, um, you know, my house dress, I'm very familiar with uh, women who, you know, wear those house dresses around the house and, don't have time for makeup and hair and just, you know, raising those kids and just trying to survive. So they let me do what I came to do. And it was, I was very appreciative. And then we had some uh, improvisation and that I sang a little song that my husband's family sings. And so I don't know, it's just a fabulous experience. It really was. And I had a reunion a couple of years ago with those kids and they're oh, all grown up and successful and they took the money that they earned in residuals and invested in a business that they run and they do very well. And so it, we went out to the farmhouse and met and, oh, I was so moved. Mom, mom, mom. <laughs> That's right, because they, yeah. they were all real siblings. Right. Yeah. yeah. That is, a, now that is amazing. That, that, that is an amazing story. I, you can't find that on IMDb. <laughs> with that being said, uh, you mentioned uh, working with those great iconic actors and of course Levinson working with him and they, they've all went on to do very good things. But a personal friend of the show, the AD on that film was Dave McGifford. And I mean, he is a friend's friend of the show. Such a great guy. Did you get to work with him directly at all on Rayman? Well, he was there. I did. Unfortunately, he was pretty busy. You know, the ADs are in the hot seat all the yeah. time. Yes. And his whole team is in the hot seat. I mean, so sadly, I can't say that I got to know him, but it was a fabulous team, which is a great compliment to him because, I mean, they were cooking. They were cooking. And in fact, there was a shot of... Um, you know how sometimes in clouds, the sun will come through the clouds and it looks like God is just 
going through the clouds, you know, those kind of days. Well, we looked out the window and there was one of the most beautiful. It's in the movie too, this beautiful thing. Well, the DP wanted to get it. And I mean, they moved. Next thing you know, there's a crew, they're in the car, they drive down the road, they shoot. Uh, Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman in their car and that they got that shot and then they come back. We still finished the day. We still finished the day. And so my compliments to him, give him my regards that I just felt that they were extremely on it and they were traveling. And I think there were some reshoots and they still got it done. I like the family in the farm where they had to knock on the door and get him in to watch his TV program before he freaked. Um, those kids, there were six little kids there. That was, well, you can imagine, you know, trying to get them all to um, focus and, and, and stay with it. And, and, and Dustin's doing what he's doing, which is the kids are like, you know, what? <laughs> and Tom Cruise is there, P.S. So it was interesting and sweet, very sweet. They were terrific. That is awesome. Um, I know I, I always preface when I see something on, on IMDb that I saw it on IMDb because it's like 70 30 as far as accuracy goes on there. But it states that your trademark character is someone who is arrogant, conservative, stickler to the rules, or even downright evil. Um, would, would, would people that only know you as the characters you play? I mean, I'm already surprised to meet you in person, but I guess the question would be is there. Or is there any similarities to the characters that you play to the real Beth Grant? Well, my husband thinks so. (laughs) (laughs) He says, what they don't know is that's the real you, like Kitty Farmer and Donnie Darko. And he always teases me about that. I mean, one time I said to him, I said, why do I play so many religious fanatics? And he said, because you are one. I said, what are you talking about? That's not true. But I am very spiritual, you know, and I really, I do pray. I meditate. I, you know, I, I'm fortunate that I, I have a, most days I have a great faith, you know, in, in life and humanity and in God. And I have, I always say, Jesus is my guy, you know, which I know people might think that's a little sacrilegious, but that's the way it is for me. That's the way I play. It's not, you know, all up in the sky with a list saying bad, good, bad, good. That's just (laughs) not the way I do it. So I said, I am not, but I I guess I am. uh, That is my focus in life is to try to be of service and try to be a channel of love. Even though these characters are sometimes like the one on Criminal Minds. I mean, I was a murderer and a kidnapper and a pedophile and just a horrible person. And when Matthew Gray Goobler talked to me about the role, I said, I'm not going to do this. I don't want to play this character. And he said, no, listen to me. He said, I'm doing it like a Grimm's fairy tale. And this is a cautionary tale to parents to watch their children. Because there are a lot of kidnappings. And I, I mean, a lot of the kidnappings are familial, you know, and has to do with divorce or whatever, but not all. I mean, there are like 100,000 kidnappings a year and it's that quick to take a child. It's, it, I didn't know a lot of this previous to that. And he said, I want to do this as a cautionary tale. So then I said, I'm in. Maybe, yeah, maybe I'll save one if one child, who knows? Has there ever been a role that you that you turned down? Because maybe, because a lot of the characters that you play are right there on the line of like, of it, like where satire meets 
almost punching down at a stereotype of what a believer is. Is Has there ever been something that crossed the line too much for you where you didn't feel comfortable um, portraying somebody like that? It was a remake of a Toby, I want to say, Ch Chainsaw Massacre. Mm, okay. Yeah, and yeah. I, and I, they kept coming back with more money, and it wasn't even that big a part. And I thought, why do they want me for this so badly? And um, I didn't want to do it. My husband said, No, you're not doing it. It's too much. It's you know. And I called my friend Todd Holland. You mentioned Malcolm in the Middle, who put me on Malcolm in the Middle. He's my dear friend. We did a pilot together called Five Houses. I did um, the Wizard that he directed a film. This big cult movie. The Nintendo um, commercial. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's it. And um, so Todd said to me, Always ask yourself, what are you putting in the universe? And so I've tried to have that be my guideline ever since then. And that was 20 years ago, I guess. I remember recently uh, my agent, I, again, I can't remember exactly the character, but I know I felt I didn't like the tone. It was a hateful tone and there was nothing rewarding about it. And I remember saying to him, I said, I don't like the tone of this. I don't, I don't think they're up to any good. They're salacious. And yeah. there've been a couple of things. I think things, you know, no judgment, everybody to each his own, as they say. That's what my mother said on her deathbed. I was making amends to her for something. And she said, oh, Beth, everybody has their own path. And I thought, <laughs> you know, that's a very good thing to leave me with because it's sort of like keeps me from being in the judging business. You know, I can just like let people live their lives, accept people and let life just go on. I'm not in charge. I'm not the boss. I'm not. I'm not God, and I, I don't need to play God, you know? Well, Morgan Freeman's already done that, I've so never, nobody else is playing God. Right. Everyone has their own paths, and some of them are leading straight <laughs> to hell. <laughs> now, look, before we get off that subject, let me ask a quick question. Now, to the best of my recollection, I think I've only seen you, as you talked about, as you talked about earlier, you mainly play one type of character. And I think, again, you answered this question with the kidnapping. But is there a role that you did accept that allowed you to totally break away from the norm of what you've done? And was it that role or was there another role that like, I'm not doing this. I'm completely someone else and I'm going for it. Huh, that's interesting. Well, you know, it's funny because I, Rain Man was actually a wonderful mother. She was protecting mm -hmm. her kids in her home. I don't know how I took a wrong turn after that. <laughs> no more kids. Get them out. Well, there's a there's a movie out called uh, Blues for Willa Dean, and uh, it's Octavia Spencer, Dale Dickey, and me, and, and an actor named David Steen. And um, it was a play first, and uh, Dale Shores, the writer who did Sorted Lives, also wrote it for Octavia and me. And I play a victim of domestic violence and her name is Willa Dean Winkler. And honestly, I love her so much. She was a good person. I mean, I don't want to tell you the ending if you haven't seen it, but she, I'm not saying that she's perfect, but she's trying to better herself. And she has this wretched husband who is, you know, really a batterer. And she's a good person trying to change, trying to change. I remember telling my acting teacher, I don't want to play a victim. And he said, well, she's not a victim if she's trying to change. And I was like, ah, right. That's my hook into her. So I would say she was like that. I did a play called uh, Grace and Glory. 
and she's a 90 year old Appalachian woman who's dying of cancer. And this do-gooder volunteer has just moved to town and she comes out to her cabin to help her. And they are just like this, but you know, by the end of the play, they are like this and it's beautiful play. I love it so much. I hated for it to close. I would love to do it again. And I've still got time. I can do it for the rest of my life, possibly. I could get to do it again. So I always think, yeah, maybe I'll do it with my daughter or something like that. She could play that character. She's a very talented actress. Went to Juilliard, so on. So I don't know. But those two. But then in television, I haven't always played terrible people. But you're right. When I think about it, the parts are going through my mind, I think, oh, a lot of them are like that. <laughs> so I don't know. You're nothing like those. You're awesome. You're nothing like those characters. You're oh, awesome. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, I appreciate it. But I was going to say, I think it. I think my chin and my nose, you know, and I have thin lips. And so I have a sort of a typical uh, crone, they call it, you know, a witch face mm-hmm. as you get older. And I think it has to do with just the way I look. Because this is, I mean, obviously, you know, I did fix my hair because I was coming to see you guys. But, you know, when I have my hair pulled back and no makeup and if I have an ugly look on my face, my daughter, when um, she was little, sometimes would say to me, Mama, why are you mad? And I was like, I'm not mad. And, and I, I learned to smile all the time because she thought I was mad and it, well, I wasn't. I was just my face. So. I, I don't know. I think, you know, God gave me this face for a reason. And it's, you know, I, I, I play them to the hilt if I, if I get the chance. I'm trying to think, what am I getting ready to do? Oh, I have a one, wonderful character coming out on Goliath, that show on Amazon. Mm-hmm. I play a tough judge and she's tough, but she's really my homage to RBG. And you never know what they use and what they don't use. But I did five episodes and I will tell you that However, she turns out, I did have a heart and I hope that you get to see it. I hope you can say, oh, there it is. I see her. So I try to, even when I'm playing these terrible characters, I try to give them a backstory inside myself and I try to find something in them, you know, like Little Miss Sunshine, that character, you know, her whole life was that pageant. And she had learned over the years that if she let a hair get out of place, that the whole thing could fall apart. And so, yeah, she was way too rigid, you know, but, and, and, and Kitty Farmer, Donnie Darko, I mean, I feel my heart goes out to them that they have to cling to that rigidity in their lives because they're so scared to death, you know. So I I love all my characters in their own way, strangely enough. (laughs) You you have to, and you do a great job at at forcing the audience to feel empathetic towards the characters that you play, Mm -hmm. which is even harder for someone like you or with the characters that you're taking on. I mean, yeah. The the first, uh, now I I remembered seeing you in Rain Man, but the first character that you played that really made an impact on me were, I think it was because I knew you from Rain Man when I saw Speed in 1994. It's like, I know her from somewhere. Um, you played Helen, the very uneasy passenger aboard bus 2525 with uh, Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock. Um, this was this movie was also kind of my introduction to them. It was right before both of their careers really took off into, I mean, especially Keanu Reeves right. has transitioned into God-like status. The biggest um, action but, film star, except for Tom Cruise, I guess, right? The two of them? Yeah. yeah. Uh, what what was it like working on that production with them? Because you're pretty much just on a bus with them the whole time, right? Well, it was great. I mean, um, 
it wasn't what we signed on to do. Uh, the script was rewritten. It was originally um, Graham Yost wrote the original script and it was different. I mean, all of us on the bus had backstories. And I, I'm, for instance, I had a little dog. I had just gotten engaged. I had a great part. We all did all, you know, the six or seven main bus characters all had these stories and we got picked up at the same bus stop every morning. We all knew each other, very friendly. Mm -hmm. And Sandy played a, a girl who was trying to be a stand-up comedian. And I had been to the club to see her show the night before. And I was a hero. I, I saved uh, the bus driver. He had a heart attack. He didn't get shot. Mm -hmm. And I volunteered to get off the bus instead of being a whiny coward, you know, who was trying to escape. And Hawthorne James, uh, you know, the bus driver, his getting shot was all the, well, Joss Whedon did the um, rewrite. Oh, Joe. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Ooh. I mean, tough, a, right now, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah I was just was, thinking about that. I mean, it was a great, it was a great movie, and your character is, it was great, but it was, your character was one of those. I remember just hollering at the screen, like, oh my God, just shut up. <laughs> shut up. You're going to get everybody killed. I mean, when I went to the premiere, because obviously I hadn't seen the movie, and I saw, oh my God, get her <laughs> off that bus, that <laughs> whiner. What about the rest of us? What about the rest of us? You know, just sit down and shut up and listen do follow directions but um and i left the party i didn't even stay for the party i was just like oh i can't bear it but i will say that what jan said to me and i knew jan because he had been the dp on flatliners um and so i knew he was very talented and he said i went to him i said there's no part. And he said, no, now trust me, trust me. This is what the studio wanted, but I'm going to get a lot of coverage of you. We're going to shoot it like a European film. And, you know, it's going to make you famous or whatever. I'm already famous. I was in Rain Man, you know, <laughs> whatever. I didn't, say that. I didn't say that, but, but, you know, um, but the, the real reason and I, and I didn't believe him, but also I fell in love with Sandra Bullock. She and I went to the same college, East Carolina university in North Carolina. And I had been sort of jealous of her because even though I was older, uh, I had been, you know, sort of the uh, biggest name that had come out of the school. And then she came along and she had gotten the lead in a sitcom and, oh, they were just all over themselves about her. And, you know, in the alumni, big pictures of her and okay pictures of me, but, and this one, this uh, writer in the Raleigh News and a Observer said, oh, you'll love her. You know, let me give you her number. She'd love to talk to you. I never called her. And then we're sitting there for the reading in the a conference room over at Fox. And we didn't know who was going to be playing that part. And here she walks in. I thought, oh, my God, it's that woman from East Carolina University. And then she turned and looked at me. I mean, literally, I fell in love with her. It was just her face lit up. She recognized me. She came over. She was polite. Next thing I know, we're joking. We're laughing. We're screaming. We laugh for the whole movie. She saved oh, me. She saved me uh, because not having much to do except sit there. And my daughter was nine months old. I was still breastfeeding and she couldn't come to the set. So I was miserable leaving my daughter at home. It, I don't know what I would have done without Sandra Bullock I really don't and I I you know I don't see her very much anymore but I will always love her and if she ever needs me in the middle of the night I'll be there you know I owe her that was the movie where I fell in love with Sandra Bullock too I had a yes. very as a teenager I had an unhealthy obsession where anybody in my family would buy me 
if there was she was in a magazine anything i'd mm. it, they'd buy it for me because they just knew it was I, yeah. I actually wrote all of her lines down from speed i have no idea why this was before you can just get scripts offline it was it was uh it was it was I just want you to know this is the first time I've heard the story just like you, so I'm equally as freaked out as you are. Don't think that he tells me no, this stuff. Well, it's, the, it's the first time I've ever said it out loud to other adults. Oh, and as I'm saying, I'm like, just shut up. It's too late. It's, yeah, it's, 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 let me ask you this, because you did say that all you guys had to do was sit there. So I did have a question, because me and him have sometimes thought about it, because we've made films and we've clearly watched a bunch of films. How many days and how long each day would you say you guys were on? that bus six weeks 12 hours a day i'd have jumped off that's that so it was truly you that walked off not the character you're like i gotta get off this thing i gotta go listen i felt so bad um the uh, mark gordon who's huge television producer now was the producer and he was so sweet we, we really did have a good time i mean it was it was because of sandy and keanu being the sweetest thing on earth uh if we had had, you know, terrible leads who were prima donnas and not nice to people, it would have been awful, but we didn't. We had her, we had him. Jan was very funny. I mean, he was sometimes terrible to his crew. He would scream, you know, at people, but funny, very funny off camera. And uh, Alan Ruck was so great. We had a great time. But nonetheless, I was so glad when I rapped. And Mark <laughs> Gordon had gotten a cake for me. And so he was so excited at lunch to present this cake and everybody's, you know, cheering and stuff. And I started singing this song. Uh, well, let's see how it goes. A goodbye, goodbye, a goodbye, goodbye, a goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. You know, <laughs> what is that? Papa's got a brand new bag, I think, right? I gotta go. Anyway. He looked so sad. He had such a little sad leader. He'd given me this cake and he could tell I could not wait to leave. And it was hot, hot, yeah. hot sun on the breaks. You know, we would wait till the sun got in a certain place where it would cool off so we could be outside. And then we were salsa dancing and we had four o'clock chocolate. And, you know, if we were shooting somewhere that there were children, Sandy would steal candy from the craft services and hand it out to them. And, they were and Hawthorne and I were terrible. We just like had the best time together telling stories. And one time the crew, we were on the 105 freeway and they would be on the side because the cameras, we shot with 11 cameras. And at that time that was really unusual, you know, and a helicopter and all this stuff. And um, on, so the bus would go down, but it was it, he wasn't really driving the bus, you know, they had other people like up on top and I don't know how all they did it. So when it was time to turn around, you didn't turn the bus around. You just had the other driver drive it. So it was like you were backing up, but of course you weren't, you get it. Right. Yeah. So I remember once, like I went, I was sitting up there and, um, <laughs> Arthur and I acted like we were making out as, as, the, as we go by the crew and the crew's going, <laughs> I mean, we were wicked. We had fun. That's awesome. That's and Keanu, Keanu was a doll and he was, you know, hard to get in such good shape. And he was eating brown rice and vegetables, really taking care of himself. It's just so sweet. So sweet. That's awesome. Um, now, you, you've worked with the late, great Patrick Swayze, uh, 1995's Chi Wung Fu, Thanks for Everything, Jolie Newmar, and 2001's Donnie Darko. 
Do you have any memories of him that you'd like to share? Well, we were in acting class together, as I mentioned, and with Milton Gonzalez, and we worked on uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf together. Oh, yeah. And uh, it was it was extraordinary working with him. And it was around the time that I was starting to accept myself as a character actress. And, you know, Martha's a tough old broad. And when I had envisioned myself, you know, as some um, gorgeous ingenue and then now I'm playing you know Martha uh, it was hard for me and there was a beautiful actress named Darlan Flugel who had been a model and she was playing Honey and uh, other guy Cal Bartlett who was playing George were you know flirting with her and paying her attention and I'm, I got tears in my eyes and he said what's the matter and I said oh character actress whatever I said and he got me by the shoulders he said don't you know Colleen Dewhurst is beautiful? Don't you know Maureen Stapleton is beautiful? You're beautiful. And da, 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 whatever he said meant a lot to me at that time. You know, really helped me accept who I am as a human being. And then we're in Tu Wang Fu. And after uh, we are, they've done us up and we're looking good and I've got the boa and I'm coming downstairs. And I had played it the first take as very campy and you know bah, 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 bah. and he came over and just whispered to me he said maybe this is a little bit like that day in rehearsal and I was like oh my god I immediately filled up and I came down the stairs in a very vulnerable way and I was very moved because baby ugly you know was pretty now mm-hmm. and so and it was the last take we it's the only take that we had for the rest of the day and that's the one they used so I have him to thank for that and then when I was auditioning for Donnie Darko there's a lot of stories I really wanted to do it I knew Jake since he was three years old and the night I read the script, I was here by myself and I found myself standing in the middle of the bed when I finished it. It was about 1130. This is brilliant. This is brilliant. I want to do this movie. So by the time I got into that audition the next day, I came in like a tornado, you know, just Kitty Farmer all over. And I I did the reading and I messed up on the last line, which is, you know, the famous line of sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. So what I said was sometimes I doubt your commitment to miracles in motion. And uh, oh, my God, they just laughed. And uh, they had told me that Patrick Swayze was playing that part. And I said, you just have to give me this part, which, of course, is also very Kitty Farmer. Sean McKittrick told me later, he said, as soon as you walked in, we knew you were the one. Because <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> I was just chewing my arm off, you know, to get this part. So, but it really did send me over the edge because I already wanted it to get to work with Jake and the script was so good. But then for him to be playing my hero, you know, and he was brave. He turns out to be, you know, a, a child pornography ring. He's running a child. So, you know, he was a brave actor. And, and plus, I just, he was a beloved friend and his wife. And yeah, we just, I worked with her too in class and we just loved each other. And at the memorial service, I, it was so beautiful. I mean, they had it over at the Sony lot and they, um, on our cars, they had a picture of him riding bareback on his, you know, white Palomino with a, uh, his shirt off. And then they, inside they had drummers, you know, and oh, it was just a beautiful, beautiful day gorgeous but it was it was beautiful but I still miss him a lot 
I really do. I think, no, I think, I think yeah, no, I was gonna say, I think, I think we all do. And remember, we, uh, I told there, Netflix has the uh, the movies that made us, and, and we went back. and I don't know if you've ever seen, but if you ever get a chance, uh, Dirty Dancing, they show how they actually made it, how he got picked, and all this stuff. It's like, man, we never saw this stuff before. And just to see him offset, no, he was a football player, he injured himself, he was a classical dancer, like, you learn so much about him, and it's like. So amazing. So I'm, yeah, I think we both shared that same sentiment. Yeah, it hit hard because, I mean, he's one of those actors I was looking forward to watch gracefully transition mm -hmm. into different roles as he got older. Uh, that's, mm -hmm. that's you know, it's something and that we'll never get. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Easily. Especially Easily. with, like, I could see him headlining a streaming series, mm -hmm. trying out, you know, a different character. How wrong was I that I used to uh, confuse him when I was younger all the time with Kurt Russell? All the time. They, they both had the hair. It was, I think it was the hair. It had yeah. to be. All right, so we're, we're fanning out. We're sorry. <laughs> you know, there's a movie you might like to check out called Without a Word. And his mm -hmm. wife directed it, and it's about them as dancers. They met in his mother's dancing class. That's how they met in Texas. And they developed it in our class. And uh, I think it's a terrific movie. It didn't get a lot of play, but that doesn't mean anything. As you know, a lot of movies don't. But... Um, called without a word right. we'll definitely know. we'll definitely check that out now one movie that did get a lot of play it's 1996 you star in a classic film atop one of our greatest or of our list a time to kill now again ah. uh, yes your ecu alumni is in the building you and sandra bullock share the screen again so let me ask you this with a film surrounded by so much tension and controversy uh in its subject matter what was a production like set like what was that like well it's funny that you asked that question um they there was a I'm trying to think was it a firebomb in a small you know those little country grocery stores nearby we shot in Jackson Mississippi while we were shooting there was a KKK event I wish I could remember the details of it but uh, it got our attention and we realized that this was a very very important story to tell but um, for it to happen in that day and age. And I know later I was there working on some other movie and I turned on the television set and A Time to Kill was on TV. And so I wrote Sandy and I said, you can't believe I am in Jackson, Mississippi. And I turned on the television set. And her first question was, what's it like there now? And you know, how are the racial relationships and what's it like? And I said, well, I think it's better because I had gone to the Episcopal church. I don't know why I went there, but I, I think it was like a Sunday fellowship thing or something. I don't know why I went, but, and it was extremely um, diverse, extremely so, and happy, not just like, you know, oh, we got to do this because we're a church. This was a happy group of people mm -hmm. and very integrated. So I was, it's funny that she asked me that question because normally when you're on a movie, you don't necessarily, you know, engage with the local community, but I just had. And right. so I said, I think the report is good. I think they've, you know, but who knows? I don't know what it's really like, but it seemed to me that things had changed. And so I hope it's true. Um, I worked there a few times. I did, uh, as I lay dying, I shot in Jackson. I did a movie called Rising Place with a Patha Murferson there. It's funny. I don't know why Jackson, Mississippi, but I've been there a couple of times to work. <laughs> You've got the right dialect for oh, it. Oh, time to kill. I will say this too. I mean, Sam Jackson in that movie is so great. Oh, and yeah. 
when I got sent, I knew Joel Schumacher from class. He was also in class with us. And when we were premiering um, Tu Wang Fu in New York, and my agent called and said, you've got an offer for this new movie, Joel Schumacher's directing. And they were sitting at the script and I get the script and I open that first scene. Mm. I was like, no, 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 no. I hadn't read the book. I don't want to do this. I don't want to play the mother of those kids, those right. horrible boys. And so I called Joel and I said, Joel, I, how do I wrap my head around this? How does she love those boys how does she testify against samuel jackson and he said it's your fault so again mm -hmm. parents responsibility and i said okay i get it he said she you know probably has some alcoholic husband who's not there she works all the time and she has not paid as close attention to those boys as they needed and I was like, oh, I don't want to be her, but I did it. And, you know, they needed that story told, you know. That's, um, yeah, I mean, that's such a challenging character to play. And that kind of answers my next question is what about your approach to the acting, especially with roles as complicated as, as Cora May Cobb, where you're, uh, yeah, you're, you're playing the, the you're playing, you're, you have to have the audience feel some kind of empathy for you because at the end of the day, you're a mother who is losing your child. But at the same time, there's there's so much wrong with that character, like inherently wrong with the character. I'm curious when, when you're getting into a role like that, like how do you insulate yourself from not going too deep into those shoes where because you have to identify with the character on some kind of level to make the audience feel something but is it is it dangerous to go uh, to identify too much with the, the character do you, do you feel like you might like lose some of your own moral compass in that journey well i i used to think that you had to i used to think that if you were a real actor you know that you and had to go really deep and that um I didn't think you could drop it so easily. You know, I thought you sort of had to live it. I know, you know, as some actors do, mm -hmm. but actually that same teacher um, talked to me about Maureen Stable and he had been directing her on Broadway and she would be in a scene and she'd be crying and then it would be dinner break and she'd say, who wants to go to jo Joe Allen's, you know? And I was like, well, I'm not that kind of person. But because of him, when I was doing that domestic violence play, there's no way I could live with that. If I had to live with that day after day, we, it was a play. And I have a family and a daughter at the time, you know, who was 10 years old. I couldn't bring that home. I mean, I did, when I was finding her, it was a struggle. And there were nights that I did smoke a few cigarettes. I don't smoke anymore, but I remember sitting out on the front porch, you know, smoking cigarettes and all five of our cats came around and our dog came around and they were all like, what's going on here? I could feel that they knew that I was suffering as I was finding her. However, once I found her, I didn't have any problem letting her go. So it's just a mental decision, I think, that you have to make that, you know, you're going to go as deep as you need to go. You're going to do the work, mm -hmm. but you aren't going to take her home. And I don't do that. I, and, and funnily enough, I, I argued with my teacher about it until I understood it. And I was doing a movie that Clint Eastwood was directing and um, we were standing up at the door and his AD said to me, you know what I like about you? I like that, that you're always laughing and joking. And then we start rolling and suddenly you're in character. He said, it reminds me of 
Maureen Stapleton. I swear to God. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe you're saying that. And so I really felt like I had it then, you know, and so, you know, but I will say this in all honesty, at this age, I don't really like going deepest unless it's a really good project. I can't say what, but there's a project now that I may or may not be doing where I play this racist and uh, we haven't found her yet. I don't know if it's going to happen. I mean, I have a signed contract, but I think they, you know, they would let me out of it if we can't figure it out. But um, I didn't want to do it. (laughs) My first thing was no. And, uh, but the producing team are dear, dear friends of mine. And, you know, they're African-Americans and I admire them. I guess I would say more than any other people I know in show business. That's the truth. And so I told my agent, I said, well, you know, if I get the offer, my answer is yes, you know, because I'll, I'll just try to figure it out. You know, we may not be able to figure it out because it's, it is, it's tricky. It's very <laughs> tricky. And um, it's not that I, I'm willing to be the bad guy. It's okay. But you still got to figure out, and I'm supposed to be funny. Not that there is nothing funny about racism. I I don't, I mean, Archie Bunker was an anomaly. And that thing ago is, look how long ago that was, too. And, you know, George Jefferson always got the upper hand and Lionel got the upper hand and he always lost, lost, lost. But you can't, I don't know. As I say, we haven't found it. Yeah, I think. That, I mean, it's big of you to be willing to walk away from a role if you can't do it respectfully in the right way to bring it to life. But uh, yeah. I think there's definitely humor to be found in a character like that, as long as the character is established the right way. They're, they're established as, like you said, a cautionary tale, or this is an example of what not to do. Mm-hmm. Always Sunny has, uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia is one of my favorite shows, and they do a lot of satire on there where... And a lot of this, a lot of the episodes have been pulled from Hulu because people just don't understand the nuance of satire anymore. Where if characters are playing racist, the 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 joke they have is, that on like, they have that on Sunny in Philadelphia. They have racist. They have a few episodes that are. I mean, they have an episode called the first episode is called the gang gets gets racist. They have an episode where the gang turns black, and but it's all it's all about like punching themselves, you know, like making themselves oh, into a punching bag to. Um, that's the trick you can't it just can't be but maybe we'll figure it out i hope so you know it's it's definitely intriguing just in in what you've given us today it's um yeah it sounds like it'd be a a a fun a a unique challenge at at the least i mean if it's yeah yeah we'll see I'll let um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to uh, the year 2000. Uh, Y2K. You starred in uh, an episode of The X-Files, seventh season, Signs and Wonders. I'm a big fan of the show. I'm a bigger fan of David Duchovny. So I'm just curious what it what that set was like to work on. Well, it was terrific. It was, um, I knew Jillian Anderson from... Gosh, I'd forgotten our mutual friends, but we had some mutual friends. So I had met her a couple of times and I knew her before before the show started, you know, and so 
um, I think she knew I really liked her, you know, that I wasn't just like kissing up to her or something. And so she was wonderful. And then David Duchovny is funny. I mean, he's, he made me laugh. And um, my husband had done the show and did a very important role on the show. I've forgotten the name of it now. Uh, mine was Signs and Wonders and his was, he played a serial kidnapper who kept women in his basement and then one of them escaped and then he was psychically bonded with her. And uh -huh. in the end, you know, he was trying to drown her. Does that ring a bell to you if you're a fan of the show? Yeah. So anyway, that was my husband's and it was a very well-received episode. Okay. Now, speaking of other shows, you've appeared on so many, and I do mean so many great television shows from iconic classics to modern masterpieces. Is there a particular TV set that you've enjoyed working on the most, whether it be the character you were given to play, maybe the cast you've worked with, or just the overall dynamic dynamic of the production itself? I mean, what comes to mind is the first Malcolm in the Middle I did because Todd was directing mm -hmm. and Jane uh, Kaczmarek, she's just so great, you know, and she's a theater person. And, and so we really clicked and we had this bit where I am the leader of the pack at this school and she's the new mom. And so she has brought brownies. Hope everybody likes brownies. Oh my, that is so thoughtful. And uh, I'm sort of chicken. I said, well, are there nuts in it? And she says, well, yeah, there's so-and-so. And I thought, oh, gee, we can't have that. Some of the children are severely allergic to nuts. So uh, you never know. You can never be too careful. So I take the brownies over and I dump them in the trash. So the first take, we did it. And the prop guy had rightly greased the pan so it would come right out. And went, bloop, all in one piece. So Todd unbeknownst to me or Jane uh, had told him, get it to stick them in there really hard so she'll have a hard time getting them out. So I say, you never can be too careful. And I go over and those things aren't coming out and I'm banging. He's not calling cut. So I just kept banging and banging. He's not calling cut. Bang, bang. <laughs> so then I just reached my hand in the brownies and just like... <laughs> put him out with my hand just this barbaric act and i go over back to her meanwhile she's about to lose it you can tell she's just about to so i hand her the thing and say believe me this isn't meant to publicly humiliate you i'm sure they were delicious you can see her go <clears throat> and he cuts but it's it's really that was so joyous. You remember that? That was so, I love, like I said, I love accidents. I love unexpected things. I had a, I did a movie, Brad Pitt's first movie, y'all, The Image, and um, with Albert Finney. And I just loved him so much. I, I was supposed to hate him and I was supposed to blame him for everything. And then it would be my turn to yell at him and I'd be kind of like, mm, you know, I, I just didn't have it in me. And so the director, Peter Werner, comes up and he says, you hate this guy. He's ruined your life. Your boss killed himself. Got it. Got it. And so then we're going again. And I did better that time. Uh, but he doesn't call cut. And Albert sort of crosses his arms and looks down at his feet. Now He wasn't judging me or anything like that, but that was his body language. And I started the scene over and I went ballistic. I said, 
don't you look down at me when I'm talking to you. You look at me when I'm talking to you. And I went up on the monologue again. That was the one in the movie, you know. And um, it became like a centerpiece of the movie. They even changed a lot of the plot points because it was so powerful. They kept, it was a news uh, team and they kept redoing it. So when I got to the premiere, and they all came running over to meet me. We wanted to meet you. We felt like we were working with you because they kept playing that scene over and over in the newsroom. So what an honor, what a thrill that was. I mean, but I could go on and on. I, I mean, that was sort of television. That was one of the early HBO movies that they released as a feature worldwide, but it was, you know, sim- what they're doing now. It was, it was like a week later, they were doing it on um, HBO. So but I, I guess Malcolm in the Middle, wherever I laugh the most in my life on uh, the Mindy Project, because Mindy is so hilarious. Our guest stars are, were hilarious. Ed Weeks was hilarious. David Stassen and was one of the writer producers. He was give me give me the funniest lines. Ike Barinholtz, please. I mean, there were times I thought I was going to pass out to not laugh. And of course, my character. Is I mean, I smiled some when I got some demented humor that I thought was funny. But a lot of the time I had to have a straight face and it was hard. I would be biting my cheeks (laughs) like that to keep a straight face. So I did laugh a lot on that show, but it was a hard show too. So I'm not saying that I was laughing all the time because, you know, we were on location and there were different, um, you know, it was was, uh, comedy's hard, as they say. Comedy yeah. ain't easy. What is that? What's that old joke about dying's easy, comedy's hard? <laughs> yeah, the, uh, comedy and horror, the two things where Time you're going everything. out and you're saying, I'm going to make you laugh or I'm going to make you scared. It's like, it's it's very apparent you whether to make you succeeded or not. <laughs> yeah. Returning to uh, Donnie Darko in 2006, you returned to the Donnie Darko universe in the follow-up film Southland Tales. This was among, speaking of ensemble casts, this pretty much had every recognizable name and face of that time in this movie. And but writer-director uh, Richard Kelly, has he has such a unique approach to storytelling. It, it, he, he begs the audience to interpret what he's doing. And uh, I'm, I'm curious what it's like on the acting side of that, bringing a movie to life, like, how do you go about interpreting his stories or is there a more explanation behind the scenes so the actors kind of know where their what their perspective is in the midst of everything well sometimes but in that case he um he was very as young as he was and drew was so cute she would bring him food eat and say eat you have to eat food uh because he was i guess 25 when he wrote it 26 when he directed it something like that so he had a very clear vision for sure, um, but he had sort of channeled that whole script in six weeks. And so I think that's why it's fun for him to see what people think, because I don't know that he knew. In 2007, you pre-visioned it. You played Carla Jean's mother in the Coen Brothers classic, No Country for Old Men. Three years ago, I pre-visioned it. You were absolutely perfect at bringing the special brand of Coen Brothers character to life with all the particular nuances. What was it like working with them? Oh, well, it was just heaven. I mean, I couldn't believe it happened. I had loved them for so long. 
And as soon as I read the script, well, I knew, and I knew the book, you know, I was like, oh my God, oh my God, this is it. This is going to be their masterpiece. And that's saying something because right, everything right. they've done, it practically right. is a masterpiece. And um, I had always liked Miller's Crossing had, was my favorite prior to this, but I really felt it. And I, I, I remember I was sick the day I went in for the audition and I was lying down in the waiting room before I was called in, but I knew what to do with her. She was a bit of my grandmother and I just knew who she was. I can't explain it. And so they got, got along great with them, but then I didn't hear for two months. Mm -hmm. And then I got a call on a Thursday and they wanted me to come in on Saturday. They wanted to, you know, uh, uh, photograph me and film me and I couldn't go. I had a commitment with my daughter to go to um, a, a, something that G Gina Davis does with, uh, I think it's called Girls, Girls, Girls or something. It's some kind of uh, sports camp and raising money for, you know, girls to be in sports and things. And they had the soccer team that had won the gold medal was going to be there at a celebrity golf tournament, whatever. And Mary was a goalie. She's six feet tall and she was five foot nine when she was 12. And so it meant so much to her. She had invited her friend. They were coming to pick. I couldn't, I couldn't, no, I couldn't cancel. I could not do it. So it broke my heart. And I said, what am I going to do? My husband said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to film it and we'll get it to them. And this was before now everybody does that, but they didn't used to do that. You didn't send in VHS, especially to the Cohen brothers. Yeah. Um, but he recorded it on our little VHS. Our daughter read my line, the off-camera lines, and he took that thing, bless his heart, and hand delivered it to their office and put it on their desk. He didn't want anybody touching it. He wanted to make sure they got it. And then I got the offer on Monday. So it started with, you know, I knew that it was a charm situation because for that to happen. And it was just fabulous. They were wonderful. They were kind, friendly. They knew what they wanted. They, the, they're the only directors I've ever worked with who gave you, uh, with your sides in the morning, you got the shot list and the storyboard. And so I knew exactly what they were shooting when they were shooting it. And it, I had never thought that that would be particularly helpful, but it was, it was great. And um, just loved them. We finished early. I, I only shot three days, something like that, but you know, happy crew when you get, when you're working an eight or 10 hour day, you got a happy crew. So everybody was very happy, very, very much in a good mood. And it was just wonderful. I will say that Mary Voorhees, their uh, costume designer, who's done a lot of their movies, is really the one that came up with, I had never conceived that, you know, white curly hair and the uh, big glasses. And she had a beanie uh, bra filled with beans. So I had saggy boobs, all that kind of stuff. Sorry, um, one moment, please. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's, a, there's a knock at the door. I'm going to check on that real quick. I apologize. Hello. At the door, <laughs> they're persistent. They, they tried like five minutes ago, and we tried to ignore it. But then they uh, they decided to try again. Uh, maybe it's important. <laughs> That's uh, I saw that um, Josh Brolin uh, had ended up sending in his audition tape as well yeah. for that, and that, and that had Quentin Tarantino direct his yeah. audition. Yeah, sure. mine wasn't quite Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> 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 yep, and funnily enough, he was best friends with. 
star of Jericho, that series I did, who's from Concord, North Carolina. Ulrich, uh, Skeet Ulrich. Oh, Ulrich. yeah, yeah, okay. Good. Was best friends with Josh and had told him about the part. And then Josh got it. And so I always thought, gosh, that was generous of him to do, you know? That's the way it should be. Yeah. I've done it and it's been done for me, but it's pretty rare, you know? Well, it was on IMDb, so I'm not sure how true the end of the story was, but I, I thought it was funny that he put all this, uh, Brolin put all this work into his audition tape. Quentin Tarantino directed it, shot it with the cinema camera, uh, sends it into him, and and their only reply, according to IMDb, was uh, we we like the lighting, <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> which it see it's one of those things that feels true because it seems like the Co something the Coen Brothers would do because they're just very dry. But, uh, yeah, I thought that was humorous. Well, I'm sure that they weren't used to getting that kind of lighting on a submission oh, yeah. tape like that. <laughs> they thought, my God, this is like a feature. Oh, that's funny. Josh um, was so cute at the premiere. He came over and he said, I've been wanting to meet you. You got me killed. Because <laughs> our scene was only on the phone, so we hadn't actually worked together. Yeah, I think the uh, there's not much connecting between the characters and that i think the um your daughter in the movie is the only character that actually interacts with each of the main characters that she's like the, oh. the 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 eye of the pyramid i guess well <laughs> you know I, i've i've seen that movie 15 times and i didn't realize that that is cool i can't wait to tell my husband we <laughs> love that movie we love it we love <laughs> it and it's not because of me they did it it's not my uh, it's not my go to Coen Brothers movie when I want to watch a Coen Brothers movie, but it's definitely I would say the best Coen Brothers movie. The, Which one the, is your go to? My go to is pro. It's it, depending on how I'm feeling. It's either The Big Lebowski or Burn After Reading. They don't make a bad movie. Like, everything that they've done has been at least a nine. What was the one that got a little poo pooed? Ladies in Lavender or something? With Tom Hanks. Oh, uh, the the Lady Killers. The Lady Killers. That's right. Yeah. It was pretty fun. Yeah, it was, and I mean, it was Tom Hanks. Like I'd never seen him before, and you could tell he was yeah. having so much fun with that character. You gotta go at a movie like that with the right attitude. That's that. You know, what we bring to it makes such a difference. Yeah, I mean, their dialogue. Well, and that's actually my my next question. Like like the Lady Killers, the, the dialogue in all their movies, the dialogues have such a specific rhythm to it. They're almost it's almost like lyrics to a song. I mean, it's like you were made for a Coen Brothers movie when you're sitting in the back seat delivering those lines. They're, you're just you are in tune with their rhythm perfectly. And I'm curious if there is any room for improvisation on their films or is it like to the T? Well, I did it to the T and they asked me if I wanted to do anything else, but I didn't have anything else to do. It's, I mean, it's just so weird. Cause like, as I say, I improvised on Rain Man and frequently in features you do improvise, but they are, they're so good. It was, it was to the T. I mean, I, I can't speak for the rest of the, you know, only was in my work, but it was just perfect. So why mess with it? And I said, oh, I wish I had something else, but I don't. So we went home at four o'clock. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I can't improve upon perfection. This is it. This is what you, this, this I mean, what you pay just, for. They had it 
Right. And if they liked it, it was good enough for me. Right. Yeah. Now, you, you've talked about how much you prepare and how you, you know, try to find that the, the reason behind these roles. Let me ask you this. There's always the, the fine line of comedy and drama with their work. Now, as an actress tasked with bringing these emotions to life, how do you approach a role like this? Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, uh, once again, a bigot, really. Um, I I just because I had this strong image, I, I felt like I had met this woman. Now, I was a little bit afraid of the big white wig. Right. And the I thought, oh, my God, is it too much? And I got in that trailer. But then I saw Javier's and I was like, Javier's. <laughs> ah, well, I'm not going to be more direct. Um but I, I just knew I wanted to keep her very real. And I, I did a thing my mother always did. You've probably seen Southern women do it, of keeping my pocketbook in my lap. Mm-hmm. And ha- my mother would cling to her pocketbook wherever she was. One time when I first moved out to California, we rented a limousine for her. And, you know, we weren't rich, but we just wanted to make her feel good. She and my daddy. And uh picked him up and daddy's trying to help the driver put the luggage in the car. And I said, daddy, let him do it. Let him do it. That's his job. You know, then we get in the car and we've got champagne and hors d'oeuvres or whatever for her and daddy, I don't even drink, but for them. And uh, she got that pocketbook right in her lap. The whole, I said, mama, you can put the pocketbook down. <laughs> She's just holding on to that. Bike. I'm fine. I'm fine. And you know, it just tickled me. So I've just grown up around these people. So it wasn't exactly my grandmother. It wasn't exactly any one person. Uh, the high pitched voice came from my grandmother, I think. Um, but I just knew that she needed to be real. And she was real to me. So you start with that and then with um, Mary Voorhees costumes and then just looking at myself in the mirror, it was honestly one of the more fun roles because of that, because it was, there's an old ad for a streetcar named Desire with Marlon Brando and Vivian Lee. And in the ad, it says, rip from the fabric of life. And I've used that line ever since, because I think that's hilarious. And I think this one for me was ripped from the fabric of my life. Uh, I just knew what to do. Sometimes you don't know. There was a thing Barry Sonnenfeld directed me in called Maximum Bob, the Elmore Leonard novel. And uh, I knew what to do with her. And I was auditioning and I thought, oh my God, I have to go all the way with this character. So I did the whole hairdo piled up on top of my head and these black glasses and old Oxfords and a pitiful dress I mean I just knew what she looked like but I looked in the mirror and I thought oh my god is this too much to go to an audition you know but I felt it in my heart it wasn't intellectual it came from inside and I went down Sunset Strip which is so fancy you know and I stopped at a gas station to get gas and I said we'll see how people react to me if people start laughing or if somebody says oh where are you going they none of them did they all were very polite and I thought okay I got her. I got her. And and I did get her and it was great. So yeah, they, they come from um, all different places, sometimes from a wig, a hairdo, a dress, sometimes just organically inside of me, you know, doesn't mean I get the part though. And it doesn't mean it's that I'm always good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I try hard. How, how tight was the direction on on No Country? Like, like for instance, when you, uh, you know, how many people I know in El Paso? That's how many. Is that in the script or is that like 
I feel the need to throw up my hand here. You know, I don't remember. I think it was in the script. I don't know. Yeah, it must have been because the line was, that's how many. So it must have been in the script. Okay. You know, perhaps I did it with greater finesse than Let's one would imagine. I got the answer. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you don't quite remember that, let me ask you this: No matter whether it was fun or you know, just your your personal memory, was there your favorite? Do you have a favorite memory from that set? Whether it was someone you worked with off screen, on screen, what was your favorite memory from that set? All well, I loved everybody. What an honor! I will say my favorite memory, and I probably lost some money because of it. But you know, between shots, it occurred to me that I could record the telephone conversation with Josh. I could do my side of it. And I thought that would be better than in a studio because I was in character. I was in costume. I felt I would be able to give them more of -hmm. what they wanted. And so they said, oh, what a great idea. And so they got the sound guy. We went into a room at the motel room and- No, she'll be all right. She'll be all right? And we recorded it in like two takes or something. And uh, I did think it was great. When I saw the movie, I thought, oh, man, that worked. And I don't know that I would have been as good in a cold studio. You know, it's different. And yeah. so, But then I thought, oh, hell, I could have gotten another, you know, payday there. <laughs> ADR session, eight hours. We need you. Yeah. <laughs> but I wouldn't trade it for anything. And the, the night of the premiere, oh, my God, it was so thrilling and Watching it, I mean, it was the most quiet I've ever heard any audience ever during a movie. I mean, you could hear a pin drop the whole damn movie. Mm -hmm. And then when it was over, you know, with that ending, you know, you don't even, aren't even sure. It was so quiet. There was no applause. Beat, beat, beat. And then finally, whoa, big ovation, you know. And it was like, oh, phew, you know, because <laughs> you never know. But mm-hmm. I did think because they were being so incredibly quiet that people were with it all the way. I was. And um, and then at the I remember at the premiere, uh, Tony Bill, the, the great director and producer's wife, Helen Bartlett, asked me, she said, do you think that Tommy Lee Jones's character, do you think the sheriff finds God and I said, gosh, I'm going to have to see it again. I got I hadn't thought of that. But you think about that going on with that far, that dream, you know, that he had about his father and stuff. Ooh, very moving. So, yeah, that, that movie just begs for interpretation. It feels like a parable more than you're more than you're watching something take place in reality. It feels like everything is a metaphor. And people, people who say it's too violent. I mean, I I don't like um exploitative exploitative movies where it's violence just for violence personally but you know um this violence didn't bother me at all i mean i've seen it all those times and my sister-in-law was very upset after the movie and i've heard other people say that and i'm like gosh i just didn't feel that way i really didn't it was all to purpose he was the devil and Tommy Lee Jones represented God, and they're battling over the soul of every man. Josh Brolin, to me, that's what I got out. Of it. Yeah, that's uh, that's 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 a solid theory. I would take that. Before we, before we go on from uh, No Country for Old Men, is there anything else that you think fans of the film would like to know? 
gosh, I don't know why that's such a loaded question for me. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> well, I, sweet, I'll tell you something sweet about Javier. I didn't work with him. However, they had the Broadcast Critics Awards and we were at the table with him and we, I had been shooting that day, in fact, on a movie and I barely made it. I was still in my costume and I had a little French twist and I was playing a Midwestern woman, had a little pocketbook and little high heels and this little imitation Chanel suit. And anyway, I was late. I, wore, I walked the carpet and then we got, to, we were right there with him and, but we were late and they were giving away the awards and we had to pause for a commercial break to take our seats. So they had seat fillers, you know how they do. And so we went down together through the audience uh, and sat at this table and bonded. You know, we were friends by the time we got there. And uh, he's just a sweetie pie. He really is. I know it sounds like I'm saying that about everybody. I don't feel that way about everybody. I promise you that <laughs> I, I, I did. And after he got his award and he sat back down, he looks at my husband, he says, was that okay? Was that all right? You think, did, did they understand my English? And I thought, good grief. Here's this extraordinary actor from a theatrical family in Spain. He's done all this incredible work and he's so vulnerable and worried about, did they understand his English and what's what he said? Okay. And it just endeared him to me. So I'll tell you that story. That's it. Now, the year's 2011. You were a writer and director on Girls, 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 a film written, produced, edited, and shot entirely uh, by women, which also stars your daughter, Mary Chifo. Can you tell us about that film and what it was like being on the other side of the camera? Ooh, it was hard. <laughs> but I loved it. I did. I loved it. Uh, well, Anna O'Reilly, uh, my dear friend, Anna O'Reilly, um, and Lauren uh, Miller-Rogan and Jennifer Zaborowski, uh, we all met for lunch and they knew about this grant and it was a thousand dollar grant to do a short, you know, that was all done by women. And uh, Octavia and I were friends and I said, well, I would love to direct it if you would allow me to include Octavia in the cast and my daughter in the cast. I would really love to direct them because I had done a well in addition to the play I had done another movie that I produced called Herpes Boy which is if you haven't seen it it is a darling movie and uh I had gotten Octavia and Anna were both in that and uh, my daughter was in that a little bit so you know you, I like to use people that I know well and love anyway they agreed to it and so we started working on the script we had meetings and Lauren wrote a script and I had just done The Artist which of course was a silent film and um, but in the artist, we did move our lips, you know, and the lines would come up as they used to do in the old films. And I had this idea while doing the artist, I thought, could wonder if we could do a movie where no one spoke. Could we really make that clear where it was just music back to back? And, you know, it'd be choosing the right songs or score, you know, and. Uh, it, it would take very special actors. And so after Lauren had gone to all the trouble to write the script, I said, what do you think? And she was like, oh, I don't know. And she said, okay, let's try it. And so that's what we did. And so we took away all the dialogue and it's great. Honestly, it's great. And we won a couple of awards and audiences responded. Uh, 
one film festival we didn't get in. I was so surprised because I had heard that people loved it. And I asked the lady, I said, tell me the truth. I'll never repeat. So I won't tell you which festival, but an important festival. And she said, Beth, it was too feminine. We, it's just, and that was, you know, back in 2011. So yeah. When, so it's different now. It would oh, yeah, have been, been the rave of the festival now. It'd yeah. Been the rave. Now it would be like, oh yeah, all women. And she said, it was just too feminine. She said, we get harder, edgier stuff. Um, but I'm very proud of it. I love it very much. And uh, it the hardest part to, for me um, was, well, I mean, it's all challenging. You know, y'all are directors, right? So you know what I'm talking about. It's hard, hard work. And you have to get a little obsessed. It's only for me anyway. Yeah. The hardest moment for me was sitting at my dining table all by myself because nobody else could do it and creating the shot list. I thinking of, I had to visualize the movie okay this and then we go here now did I use it I used some of it but a lot of it was on the fly and then people would give me ideas my daughter gave me an idea uh one of the crew people gave me an idea you know you just sort of do what you do then we had some uh not reshoots but additional uh shooting and uh, my husband got a lot of insert shots for me and and then the next hardest thing was you know, editing is so hard to cut your favorite shots. We had this shot. Now y'all relate to this beautiful shot of a cup of coffee being poured. I mean, we had gotten that shot. It was beautiful, but it was blocking our story because it made me want to do the next scene in a different way. And I said, I'm not losing that shot. I'm not losing that shot. I'm not gonna, I gotta remember. But it was too much to have her take that cup of coffee, deliver it. We were losing momentum. We didn't need it. And it mm -hmm. was slowing us down. Mm -hmm. So I very sadly had to cut that shot. That kind of thing was hard. But yeah. I loved it once it was done. Now, could I cut more now? Absolutely. I've seen it so many times at every festival I took it to. I think, oh, why didn't I cut that? I could cut that. But it works at, you know, 12 minutes and 42 seconds. Uh you know, I, Mark Duplass, who was one of our guest stars on Mindy, said um, that um, to me, he said, you know, the trick to getting in Sundance is to have a movie under five minutes because <laughs> they love to have a short movie that they can program. And he said, really, all the festivals. But he said, that's what you need to do if you want. If you really want to direct, make a bunch of movies under five minutes and keep hmm. putting them out. I said, yeah, well, a little late for me. <laughs> Yeah, no, what I, what I'm, I'm still, there's a, there's a few things that hit home for me in what you said. First was the, the not having, um, dialogue had to be so nice in post-production having to not have to deal with audio cleanup or, uh, any of that audio post-production. But, um, but then, then when you're talking about the shot list, I, I, that, that's, um, that's the same thing where it's nice to have those, to have that blueprint in your back pocket, just in case your brain decides not to turn on yeah. the next day. That happened. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. In fact, so, I had a situation where the DP came over and said something to me. And all I heard was gobbledygook, gobbledygook, gobbledygook. And I was like, oh my God. And I looked at the AD, who was also our producer, and I said, what did she say? And she's, and I heard again, gobbledygook, gobbledygook. I, I, I had ceased to speak English. 
I yeah. could not understand it. And I said, okay, we're going over here. You know, I didn't know what we, what they said to this day. I don't know what they said. So yeah. What did you say? You said it good. Like your brain said just like, decides not to turn on. Yeah. Just, just doesn't on. turn on. It just yeah. says, I can't go there. You've overworked me. I'm not going to do it. I'm on autopilot until further notice. <laughs> yeah. The um, hard part with the editing though was I had an album. I had the rights to an album. And um, I knew that was the music I wanted, but then my poor editor, you know, we didn't have a fancy, you know, music editor. So she had to do all of that extra work. And I know that it was very difficult for her. So I really gave her a tremendous amount of credit. And editing has gotten easier from year over the years. I, I totally identify with what you're saying, not wanting to lose a particular shot because you know what went into it and it's just so pretty and, or whatever the reason is. And uh, like my first movie could have easily been 45 minutes shorter. And and now I kind of try to think in because I look back at those and it's so easy, like a few years go by, you look at something, you're like, I could I could easily trim 30 minutes off of this thing. I try to put myself in that mindset while editing. Like, how am I going to feel about this in a few years? And it's it's difficult, but it's helped not be not be so married to every moment um, and let things go to to make a tighter picture at the end of it. Uh, speaking of tighter picture, <laughs> let's move on to the next one. Number 11 on our questions. We have two questions left after this. Um, and we have barely scratched the surface of the multitude of your accomplishments today. So I want to just kind of take an umbrella over everything that remains and say, is there a particular character that you've played that you're most fond of that you would want more people to know about out there and check out? Well, obviously, Kitty Farmer, Donnie Darko. We talked about her before. Sissy Hickey and Sorted Lives. You know, um, I mean, that movie is such a you know, it's a very low budget movie and just wild and raucous. And I just love it so much. I know it's not everybody's cup of tea. I've had a couple of people. My mother almost got in a fight. She loved it. Of all my things, I think that was her favorite. And she was at the motion picture country home when she was her last two and a half, three years of life. And uh, we had a screening for all of her friends and one of them just hated it and wheeled out in her wheelchair. And my mother went after her and just said, you know, told her off. And I mean, it was so funny. Dale and I got so tickled because I said we caused a, a fight. They almost came to blows at the motion picture country home. But I would slap you if I didn't have this purse in my hands. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> very funny <laughs> i gotta tell dale that line uh, but anyway i love sissy hickey she too is my grandmother and i went to gay pride at um uh palm springs once and uh i i'm just such a nut i i, I dress like sissy hickey to ride in the parade i couldn't resist it with that hairdo and I had rubber bands and I was just being goofy and I was sitting on the back of a Lincoln Continental convertible and I was throwing rubber bands and I had a cigarette in my mouth and these two gorgeous guys were driving the car and you know my escorts and Canyon Boulevard was just you know I don't know 10 feet deep with you know gorgeous men and we're driving down Canyon Boulevard and I thought my grandmother 
because my grandmother liked men and so did my mother. And I said, my grandmother is up in heaven tap dancing. She is so, she, this tickles her that her old country bones, you know, are being represented and look at the attention she's getting, you know? So I do love Sissy Hickey and um, she was a good person. You know, she's the one that she stands up for brother boy, Leslie Jordan's character at the end. She's the one that says, you know, let him stay. And uh, I liked her, but she was, um, you know, she'd been married five times. You know, that's my kind of woman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we met three, man. <laughs> uh, let me ask you this. Okay, so we're winding up. We're, we're winding down here. But with so much experience yourself on top of all the experienced filmmakers that you've shared the screen with, what is the best piece of advice you can give to expiring, aspiring actors? Well, I would say slow and steady wins the race. I would say uh, go to class, go to class, go to class, get in plays, do theater and build yourself a support group in these classes and theater and invite everybody to see it. Don't be too proud to do student films. I mean, I did a student film. I was trying to think the last one I did was probably three years ago. Mm. And um, I, I don't do them all the time. But if if I am available and somebody gets a script to me and I think, you know, I like the director, I'll do, uh, you know, low budget movies. And, you know, this invitation I just got was, um, I mean, I'm sure they're not paying much. They, But it, it's not about that. You know, it's about it's about the role and the story and the director. And so don't be a snob. Don't let your ego. Remember, ego is not your amigo. <laughs> and, and, and pray to be of service because that's the goal. The goal is what are artists anyway? We're human beings who are telling our personal stories through other people's mouths. We're channeling our stories through these other people. And we learn about ourselves and we grow as human beings. And hopefully, I mean, that's the goal, whether you're Picasso or whether you're the Coen brothers or me or whoever, I think that's the goal. It's not about getting rich and famous, which is of course why we all go into it. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, not all actors, but a lot of us actors that we're dreaming big, you know, and I wanted to be loved. I just wanted everybody to love me. And it was a way I could get my mother's attention. She loved it when I, we called it show, showing off or showing out. Sometimes they'd say, look at her showing out. And um, mama loved it. It made her laugh. It made her smile. My uncle Billy loved it. I wanted them to love me. And so mm -hmm. that's really was the beginning of it. And I heard Meryl Streep say that too, that you know, she, she said, some of us, we all hopefully get some attention when we sing a little song at Sunday school or whatever. Um, but some of us like that applause a little too much. You know, it's like, whoa, I want that for the rest of my life. So I would say over time, it needs to change so that it is about the work and the craft and learning. But you, it, it's so thrilling. I mean, it's, it's, the ultimate between action and cut, or if you're stepping on the stage, once you step on that stage and you're in that unknown territory, anything can happen. Anything can happen between action and cut. Anything can happen on that stage that's lightning in a bottle. And so it brings you closer to your higher power. It, whatever your definition of your higher, I don't care if it's equals MC squared, the energy of the universe. Even Einstein said the universe is friendly. 
and the people that have been splitting atoms say, I don't know what it's called when we get to that point where we split that atom, but there's some energy there. So that's what we're after is, is to come close to that, to touch it, you know, and to feel it and to let it pass through us. So that's a lot. I didn't keep it simple, did I? <laughs> that's, 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 it's wonderful. I like it. Yeah, no, there's something. I would say so... slow and steady wins the race is the biggest. <laughs> and ego know. is not your amigo. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. No, when, when a group of adults get together and agree on, and like play, play pretend on an agreed premise, how is that any different than the reality we live in anyway? So to get to do that on stage or in front of a camera where at least the premise is controlled and there's a a meaning that we've all agreed on, I mean, yeah, it's got it's got to be thrilling and to to really not take that for granted if you're in the position to be able to get to live these extraordinary lives within the big life. Um, the most recent role that uh, that you've played that has been released is uh, Sheriff Lund in the new Nicolas Cage film. Right back to the beginning of where we started here. As everything begins and ends with Nicolas Cage. Always. Willie's Wonderland. Willie! Willie needs to eat. And I'm going to feed him. And busy as always, we see that you have a few projects in various stages of production to be released in the near future. Can you tell the audience what to keep an eye out for? Well, I'm very excited about Goliath that I did with my old friend, Billy Bob Thornton, and he and I started together and um, I was just thrilled to do it. And we were actually on a show called The Judge and I'm playing The Judge. And at one point I was supposed to do the movie, The Judge with Robert Downey Jr. and Robert Duvall, but unfortunately I wasn't available because of the Mindy Project. And so I, I just have a feeling that Billy thought of me for this because, you know, it's like coming full circle at this time of life. And I mm -hmm. love doing that. So that coming out soon, I would think, don't know. It wrapped in January. So I hope we hear soon. What do I have in the camp? Well, right now on Amazon Prime video. Ooh, poltergeist behind you, poltergeist. Oh, that was behind <laughs> us. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Hey, right. hey, well, maybe stuff we need to be watching out for. Behind us. With lights, camera, action, we're down the camera, action. Anything okay. can happen between action and cut. Anything can happen. Have you not been listening? It's, it's okay. What are you doing? <laughs> you trying to see what it was? Oh, okay. It's the light. It's the light. You're, you're a little afraid there. Yeah. Yeah. See what happened when Nicholas Cage, he heard us talking about him. <laughs> yeah. he came all the way here to mess Willie's Wonderland. Well, anyway, this movie I have on Amazon Prime now is called Words on Bathroom Walls. And I love it. I just think it's great. Charlie Plummer plays a high school student who is a schizophrenic and it was released in theaters but you know it's the pandemic so anyway I'm very happy that people can see it now there's another one called Wander Darkly that's been it was also released in theaters um Sienna Miller Diego Luna I I don't know when it's coming to a streaming service but I'm sure it will be it did very well at Sundance and so on amazing that's it for now i mean I'm, I'm 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 working i have one big movie i would love to tell you about but i am signed to a confidentiality okay. agreement it's don't okay. worry we respect Some, that. something tells me we'll know it when we see it you will this is <laughs> amazing and remember hey you got to do us a favor if we review that in season three you come back and talk to us about that 
Deal? All right. Absolutely. Oh, see, there we go. We're booking. We are booking. All right. So listen, Any this is not really a last question, more. Was there any parting, parting words that you would like to share with our audience or your audience before you say goodbye? Well, I would like to say to your audience that I hope they realize how lucky they are to have such wonderful people to bring an intimate interview. We never met before today, but you're so open and loving and kind. And it's amazing. I mean, I knew from the email that you sent or Facebook thing that you sent. And I said, oh, this is a good person. I'm sorry it didn't work out before, but I'm glad we got it. I hope your audience realizes that because sometimes our, you know, we take people for granted. And I'm not saying that you are. I'm not saying you're a victim or anything like that. But I would like to celebrate you, honestly, and say that this has been lovely and fun and friendly. And I've talked about so many different things. I'm sorry I took so much time, but no, no, you guys no, no. are great. I think you're great. I really Absolutely. do. And oh I wish God. you good luck with your filmmaking career. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Hopefully one day we'll be saying, hey, we need her to come act with us and so you know act for well, us jackson and uh you know jacksonville so i've worked in uh, jackson, uh, jacksonville i'm just saying <laughs> listen i i appreciate it you'll always be the original ms in my mind meryl street not the other one all right listen <laughs> listen beth we <laughs> thank you no thank you so much for taking time out of your day tell your husband we apologize we will never keep him or you waiting again good luck with you guys business meeting and peace prosper and live long. Live long. Oh, dear. I got it. Yeah. Yeah. My daughter taught me how to do that. Okay. Yeah. Take care. Lots Thank of love you. to you. Thank you. You too. Thank All the you. best. Bye. Why don't you subscribe? It'll last longer.